In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The self-righteous think themselves to be quite imaginative. But in the end, all they can imagine is themselves. Likewise, or rather conversely, for those who are truly righteous, for those who trust in the righteousness of Christ, then the unimaginable becomes imaginable, and the glory of God is seen in all of its fullness. Earlier in Luke chapter 20, the chief priests and elders and scribes asked Jesus where he got the authority to cleanse the temple. But Jesus doesn't give them a direct answer. Likewise, just a little bit before our reading for today, in the same chapter 20 of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus refuses to directly answer this question about whether it's right to pay taxes to Caesar. There's a reason he does this. It's because when Jesus receives bad faith questions, he doesn't give a direct answer. But rather, he answers in a way that shows the duplicity of the people asking the questions, shows how they don't really care what it is that they're asking about, and that addresses the true question, the true issue that they're dealing with, exposes their deceit. But rather strangely, after doing this twice in, our, in, the chap in chapter 20 of Luke, here in our gospel text for today, Jesus answers a bad faith question quite directly. The Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, come to him with this convoluted question about the resurrection, asking which of these men this woman would be married to, which of these brothers she would be married to in the resurrection. So the, Pharisees, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. This question isn't asked because they want to learn something from Jesus, but because they want to mock him. And yet, Jesus gives a pretty direct answer telling them that there will not be any earthly marriage in heaven, that none of those earthly marriages would have been honored in the kingdom. Answers quite directly. Now, why is this? Why is it that when these men come to him with a bad faith question here, Jesus doesn't do what he typically does? Well, to answer that question, it helps to remember, as Luke tells us, that the Sadducees haven't invented this hypothetical scenario out of thin air. This is a question related to the law of Moses. So according to Deuteronomy chapter 25, if an Israelite man died without giving his wife a son, the law of Moses required that man's brother to take this widow on as his wife and to father a child with her in his brother's place. This was a practice known as leverate marriage. And so that's the requirement of the law that the Sadducees have on their mind when they ask this question. So really what the Sadducees are saying to Jesus is this command to practice leverate marriage proves that there's no resurrection. Because only one of these seven men of eternally living men would be able to continue fulfilling what God had commanded him in this life when it came to the laws about marriage. So stop believing in life after death. Be like us. Focus on serving God in this life because we have recognized that we've already served God here. We have done what he commanded. How could there possibly be an eternal life where we just obey God forever? Imagine what the point of heaven could possibly be. It doesn't make any sense. And so when Jesus responds by directly telling them that this 
that in heaven this woman wouldn't be married to any of these men. He's essentially saying to them, well, from this little story you've invented, I can tell that you think you're quite imaginative. But you aren't. Because when you think about the resurrection, you can't imagine anything glorious about God. All you can imagine is yourself. All you can think about is your own obedience to the law. All you can think about is obligation and earthly responsibilities. But I've come to show you something far greater, something far beyond the limits of your self-righteous imagination. Remember these words when you're grieved by the imaginative questions of mockery that often pierce our hearts in this life. So you've probably heard these questions before when you've been talking about your faith with people. And they get indignant about the promises of the gospel. So they'll want you to imagine a scenario when they want to mock the faith. Well, so imagine there's this guy who's lived a life completely committed to evil. He's been robbing and lying and abusing and murdering. Then at the last second of his life, he becomes a Christian. Well, then there's another guy, a Muslim or a Hindu, who spends his entire life caring for the poor, taking in orphans, showing love to everyone. You're telling me that the first guy who believes in Jesus at the last second can inherit eternal life, and the second guy with a lifetime of obedience can't? Imagine there's a child dying of disease in this part of the world over here, some innocent child who's never done anything to hurt anyone, suffering terribly and just viciously. Then there's some cruel and hateful dictator over here who pours out violence and bloodshed on anyone he can for his entire life, and he lives a long life and dies happily in his sleep. How does that work? How can you possibly say that there's a loving God when someone so innocent is consumed with suffering while someone who deserves suffering escapes it. How is that fair? How do you imagine God could be loving in a world like that? So you hear people say these things and on the one hand you dismiss them because you know that these are bad faith questions. You know that there's no possible answer you could give to these people that would satisfy them. It's not as though this isn't a hang-up that they're having. They really want to come to the faith, but they just can't quite get past this point. And yet, at the same time, these questions can oftentimes bother us and trouble us. And they, we find ourselves filled with this kind of doubt and worry about the fairness of God, the justice of God. Because, well, if the resurrection is real, if Christ is real, if salvation is real, if there's this God who wants us to live forever, why do things work the way that they work? Why would God accept Jeffrey Dahmer, who did unspeakable things throughout his life and then came to faith in prison shortly before he was death? Why would God accept him but not Gandhi, who had a life committed to making the world better for other people. Why does God let the wicked thrive and the righteous suffer? These are the questions of doubt that whisper in our ears and swim through our hearts. But in the end, these are still bad faith questions because they're all rooted 
in self-righteousness. So in these hypothetical situations, the reason these things seem to be unfair is because we are putting ourselves in someone else's shoes in order to imagine what's going on here. But whose shoes are we entering in these situations? So when it seems unjust that God would save Jeffrey Dahmer but condemn Gandhi, who are you imagining yourself to be in that situation? Not the serial killer. When you're grieved by the seeming injustice of God letting the innocent starve and the evil feast, which person are you imagining yourself to be in this? Not the evil one, but the innocent one. The person who's righteous, the person who's good, you're the person who is who you are. You've done what God commanded of you, which means that if you'd been born in a different place in a different station in life, you would have done what God commanded of you if you'd known about it. You're obedient. You've done what God has asked. And so you can't imagine how it could possibly be that a loving God could have treated you differently if you'd been born into different circumstances, how a loving God wouldn't give you the things that you deserve just because you happen to have been born into a non-Christian family or because you happen to endure a suffering that you didn't deserve. So in the end, when we look at this imbalance, when we look at the sorrow and suffering of this world and the promises of God, when you're filled with self-righteousness, your eyes become like those of the, of the Sadducees, where you can imagine absolutely anything except for the thing that exists. You can imagine your own righteousness, your own purity, your own obedience, but you can't imagine that there's actually something greater than that. You can imagine a God who commands you to do things, but you can't imagine a God of love and mercy and grace, the God that Jesus came to reveal to you. When Jesus directly answered the Sadducees' question about the resurrection, he was, of course, rebuking them for their self-righteousness. But his words weren't merely a rebuke. They were also an invitation. An invitation to imagine something far greater. An invitation to see something far greater. So with these words about how there will not be marriage in heaven, but that we will shine with the glory of the angels, Jesus is looking at the Sadducees and he's saying, here you are obsessed with the rules of earthly marriage when there's something far greater in front of you that you can't see. You're, you're all caught up on the mechanics of which of these husbands who obeyed the law of levirate marriage is going to be this woman's husband in the life to come. You can't even see the purpose of levirate marriage. The purpose of levirate marriage was not merely to protect women whose husbands had died and who needed to be taken in by someone. It was to allow those women to participate in the promises of salvation that God gave to his people. That when God promised that he would send his son into this world and that he would be one of Abraham's offspring. The practice of levirate marriage was a way of letting those women partake in that promise of the Christ who would one day come and give salvation to all of those who could not see it. This is what Jesus is telling the Sadducees. He's saying, I've come to show you the God 
who is far greater than a God who just gives earthly marriage so that there's a command for you to follow. Earthly marriage itself is meant to be a beautiful reflection of the love that I have for my bride, the church. A beautiful reflection that's far greater than a burdensome law. I've come to show you the God who is going to have all earthly symbols melt away on the glorious day of the resurrection as he invites forgiven sinners from every nation into the never-ending wedding feast of salvation that joins us all together as one. You have glory and majesty radiating right in front of your face. I've come to show it to you. I've come to show you the God whose love is so profound that he would never leave his people to rot in their graves, but will dash those tombs to pieces, raise them up, and take them into his arms forever. I'm come to show you the God who has given us eternal life, not so that we can eternally obey him, but so that he can eternally love us. I come in the name of the God who, show, who has, wants you to know that he cannot possibly rest, not until you have given him all the obedience he needs, but who can't rest until he has wrapped his arms around you and called you his own. That's what you can't imagine because of your self-righteousness. So take off the eyes of self-righteousness. Put on the eyes of repentance and see the truth. Imagine the greatest and most majestic glory possible. Multiply it by 50 trillion. And then you have just begun to see the glory of the God I've come to give you. Imagine it. Because it's true. And through these words, Jesus is calling us to see the same glory in the midst of our doubts. How could God possibly not give salvation to a righteous man over here and give salvation to a wretched sinner who comes to faith at the last second? When we doubt the love of God in this, we have the eyes of self-righteousness blinding us from seeing something far greater than this. Would God really give eternal life to someone who lived his entire life as a vicious, sadistic murderer? Yes. And thank God for that, because that's what you were. And every day of your life, you have despised God with your sins. Through every transgression, you murdered the Son of God. And yet, the God you hated could not rest until he loved you. He could not be at peace until he had peace with you, until he had ended your war and made you a son of his kingdom who will shine with the glory of the angels forever. And so he gave his only begotten son to be your savior. At the cross, Jesus forgave you with the blood from his veins. He ended your war with the wounds in his hands. He gave you peace with God through his dying breath. God's love for you is so great that he sacrificed everything in order to give you everything. He gave you the very life of his only begotten son in order to make you a sinner righteous, in order to tie you to Christ's resurrection, in order to bring you into his kingdom where he would cherish you forever. 
Your God and his salvation are far greater than the self-righteous could ever imagine. So don't be self-righteous. Imagine it. Picture it. Believe it. Because it's true. How could a God of fairness possibly allow the innocent to suffer while the wicked prosper? Well, thanks be to God that you have something imaginably greater than a God of fairness. You have a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God who pours out every endless ounce of salvation upon you, even when you were not even close to deserving it. Once you were a bride who despised her groom. Once you were an unfaithful woman who polluted herself and the world with the adultery of her sin. But you have a bridegroom who would not abandon you. A bridegroom who would not divorce you or put you away, but who gave up everything in order to cleanse you and bring you home. So, when you see the suffering of the supposedly innocent in this life, imagine something far greater. This is nothing compared to the suffering of the truly innocent one and that what he endured to make you his own. The Son of God took on human flesh. The one through whom the very universe was created became man in order to do what the universe was created to do, in order to give you eternal life and to give you eternal peace with God. The one through whom the very universe was created, who was worthy of all of the glory of heaven, came into the flesh and received violence and hatred. He was rejected and despised, and he did all of this to give you peace with God. The Son of God, to whom all the glory of the angels belongs, left that glory behind in order to be covered in spit and hatred, mockery and thorns, nails and violence, and he did this all out of his love for you. He did this to find his bride, to cleanse her, to rip her out of the hands of the devil and to give her eternal life. And he has. The God who did not need to suffer dug his hands into this world of suffering because he would not rest until he had wrapped his fingers around you, lifted you up out of condemnation, made you his own forever, and delivered you into his kingdom. The self-righteous will never be able to imagine anything beyond their own righteousness. But for those who believe, they can trust in the glory beyond imagination. In Christ, you can now see the God who is, the God who has claimed you, the God who has lifted you up and will lift you up out of the grave on the last day and bless you to watch all earthly marriages give way to the glorious thing that was promised in all of them, the union of Christ and his bride, the church, the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride. 
Now you can gaze with joy upon the promise that looks like foolishness to the self-righteous but is beyond wisdom, beyond beauty, and beyond imagination to those who know they need the righteousness of Christ. Glory beyond glory, joy beyond joy, victory beyond victory, majesty beyond majesty. As a Christian, that's what you get to look forward to when you consider the day of resurrection. That's the promise that awaits you. That's what you get to imagine in every day of your life because that promise is real, it's true, and through faith in Christ, it's all yours. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.